Section 12 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 4, Chapters 1 through 3. The Quest of the Golden Girl. Book 4, Chapter 1. The Postscript to a Pilgrimage. Chapter 1. Six Years After This book is like a woman's letter. The most important part of it is the postscript. Six years lie between the end of the last chapter and the beginning of this. Meanwhile, I had moved to sociable chambers within sound of the city clocks and had lived the life of a lonely man about town sinking more and more into the comfortable sloth of bachelorhood. I had long come to look back upon my pilgrimage as a sort of Indian summer youth, being, as the reader can reckon for himself, just on thirty-seven. As one will, with one's most serious experiences, hastening to laugh lest one should weep, as the old philosopher said, I had made some fun out of my quest in the form of a paper for a bookish society to which I belonged on Woman as a Learned Pursuit. It is printed among the transactions of the society and is accessible to the curious only by loan from the members. And I regret that I am unable to print any extracts here. Perhaps when I am dead... The society will see the criminal selfishness of reserving for itself what was meant for mankind. Meanwhile, however, it is fast locked and buried deep in the archives of the club. I have two marriages to record in that interval, one that of a young lady whom I must still think of as Nicolette to Sir Marmaduke Pettigrew, Baronet of Doltowers Hall, and the other the well-known marriage of Sylvia Joy. Sylvia Joy married after all her fine protestations, yes, but I'm sure you will forgive her, for she was married to a lord. When one is twenty and romantic, one would scorn a woman who would just jilt us for wealth and position. At thirty, one would scorn any woman who didn't, Ah, me, how one changes. No one, I can honestly say, was happier over these two weddings than I, and I sent Sylvia her petticoat as a wedding present. But it was to tell of other matters that I reopened this book and once more take up my pen, matters so near to my heart that I shrink from writing of them and am half afraid that the attempt may prove too hard for me, after all, and my book end on a broken cry of pain. Yet, at the same time, I want to write of them, for they are beautiful and solemn and good food for the heart. Besides, though my pilgrimage had been ended so long, they are really a part, yea, the part for which, though I know it not, all the rest has been written. 
for they tell how I came to find, by accident, her whom I so long had sought of design. How shall I tell of thee, who first and last of all women gave and awoke in me that love which is the golden key of the world, the mystic revelation of the holy meaning of life, love that alone may pass through the awful gates of the stars and gaze unafraid into the blue abysses beyond. Ah, love, it seemed far away indeed from the stars, the place where we met, and only by the light of love's eyes might we have found each other, as only by the light of love's eyes. But enough, my heart, the world awaits to hear our story, the world once so unloving to you, the world with a heart so hard and anon so soft for love. When the story is ended, my love, when the story is ended. End of Book 4, Chapter 1 The Quest of the Golden Girl Book 4, Chapter 2 Grace O God It was a hard winter's night four years ago, lovely and merciless, and towards midnight I walked home from a theatre to my rooms in St. James Street. The Venusburg of Piccadilly looked white as a nun with snow and moonlight, but the melancholy music of pleasure and the sad daughters of joy seemed not to heed the cold. For another hour death and pleasure would dance there beneath the electric lights. Through the strange women clustering at the corners I took my way, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, and I thought, as I looked into their poor painted faces, faces but half-human, vampirish faces, faces already waxen with the look of the grave, I thought, as I often did, of the poor little girl whom De Quincey loved, the good-hearted little peripatetic, as he called her, who had succored him during those nights when, as a young man, he wandered homeless about these very streets. That good, kind little Anne, whom De Quincey had loved, then so strangely lost, and for whose face he looked into women's faces as long as he lived. Often I have stood at the corners of Titchfield Street and thought how De Quincey had stood there night after night, waiting for her to come, but all in vain, and how, from the abyss of oblivion into which some cruel chance had swept her, not one cry from her ever reached him again. I thought, too, as I often did, what if the face I seek should be here amongst these poor outcasts, golden face hidden behind a mask of shame, true heart still beating, true even amidst this infernal world. Thus musing, I had walked my way out of the throng, and only a figure here and there in the shadows of doorways waited, and waited in the cold. It was something about one of these waiting figures, some movement, some chance posture, 
that presently surprised my attention and awakened a sudden sense of half-recognition. She stood well in the shadow, seeming rather to shrink from than to court attention. As I walked close by her and looked keenly into her face, she cast down her eyes and half-turned away. Surely I had seen that tall, noble figure somewhere before, that haughty head, and then with the apparition a thought struck me. But no, it couldn't be she, not here. It is, said my soul, as I turned and walked past her again. You missed her once. Are you going to miss her again? It is, said my eyes, as they swept her for the third time. But she had glorious chestnut hair, and the hair of this woman is gilded. It is she, said my heart. Thank God it is she. So it was that I went up to that tall, shy figure. It must be very cold here, I said. Will you not join me in some supper? She assented, and we sought one of the many radiating centers of festivity in the neighborhood. She was very tired and cold, so tired she seemed hardly to have the spirit to eat, and evidently the cold had taken tight clutch of her lungs, for she had a cough that went to my heart to hear, and her face was ghastly pale. When I had persuaded her to drink a little wine, she grew more animated, and spots of suspicious color came into her cheeks. So far she had seemed all but oblivious of my presence, but now she gave me a sweet smile of gratitude, one of those irradiating, transfiguring smiles that change the whole face and belong to few faces, the heavenly smile of a pure soul. Yes, it was she! The woman who sat in front of me was the woman whom I had met so strangely that day on the solitary moorland, and whom, in prophecy, still more strange, my soul had declared to be, now and forever, and before all worlds, the woman God had created for me, and that unless I could be hers and she mine, there could be no home, no peace, for either of us so long as we lived. And now so strangely met again. Yes, it was she. For the moment my mind had room for no other thought. I cared not to conjecture by what devious ways God had brought her to my side. I cared not what mire her feet had trodden. She had carried her face pure as a lily through all the foul and sooty air. There was a pure heart in her voice. Sin is of the soul, and this soul had not sinned. Let him that is without sin amongst you cast the first stone. Why did you dye that wonderful chestnut hair? I asked her presently, and was sorry the next minute for the pain that shot across her face. But I just wanted to hint at what I designed not to reveal fully till later on and thus to hint, too, that it was not as one of the number of her defilers that I had sought her. Why, she said, how do you know the color of my hair? 
we have never met before yes we have i said and that was why i spoke to you to-night i'll tell you where it was another time but after all i could not desist from telling her that night for as afterwards at her lodging we sat over the fire talking as if we had known each other all of our lives there seemed no reason for an arbitrary delay i described to her the solitary moorland road and the grey-gowned woman's figure in front of me and the gig coming along to meet her and the salutation of the two girls and i told her all one look of her face had meant for me and how i had wildly sought her in vain and from that day to this had held her image in my heart and as i told her she sobbed with her head against my knees and her great hair filling my lap with gold in broken words she drew for me the other side of the picture of that long past summer day yes the girl in the gig was her sister and they were the only daughters of a farmer who had been rich once but had come to ruin by drink and misfortune they had been brought up from girls by an old grandmother with whom the sister was living at the time of my seeing them yes tom was her husband he was a doctor in the neighborhood when he married her and a man i surmise of some parts and promise but moving to town he had fallen into loose ways taken to drinking and gambling and had finally deserted her for another woman at the very moment when their first child was born the child died thank god she cried with sudden vehemence and i well you will wonder how i came to this i wonder myself it has all happened but six months ago and yet i seem to have forgotten only the broken-hearted and the hungry would understand if i could remember and yet it was not life certainly not life i wanted and yet i couldn't die the more i came to know elizabeth and realized the rare delicacy of her nature the simplicity of her mind and the purity of her soul the less i was able to comprehend the psychology of that false step which her great misery had forced her to take for hers was not a sensual pleasure-loving nature in fact there was a certain curious puritanism about her a puritanism which found a startlingly incongruous almost laughable expression in the scripture almanac which hung on the wall at the end of her bed and the bible and two or three sunday-school stories which with a copy of jane eyre were the only books that lay upon the circular mahogany table once i ventured gently to chaff her about this religiosity of hers but surely you believe in god dear she had answered you're not an atheist i think an atheist with all her experience of human monsters was for her the depth of human depravity no dear i answered if you can believe in god surely i can i repeat that this gap in elizabeth's psychology puzzled me and it puzzles me still but it puzzled me only as the method of working out some problem which after all had come out right might puzzle one 
it was only the process that was obscure the result was gold whatever the dark process might be was it simply that elizabeth was it one of that rare few who can touch pitch and not be defiled or was it i have sometimes wondered an unconscious and after all a sound casuistry that saved elizabeth's soul an instinctive philosophy that taught her so to say to lay a sigurd's sword between her soul and body and to argue that nothing can defile the body without the consent of the soul in deep natures there is always what one might call a lover's leave to be taken by those that would love them something one cannot understand to be taken on trust something even that one fears to be gladly adventured all this and more i knew that i could safely venture for elizabeth's sake ere i kissed her snow-white brow and stole away in the early hours of that winter's morning as i did so i had taken one of the sumptuous strands of her hair into my hand and kissed it too promise me to let this come back to its own beautiful color i had said as i nodded to a little phial labeled peroxide of hydrogen on her mantel shelf would you like to she had said yes do it for me one day some months after i cut from her dear head one long thick lock one half of which was gold and the other half chestnut i take it out and look at it as i write and as when i first cut it it seemed still a symbol of elizabeth's life the sun and the shadow only that the gold was the shadow and the chestnut was the sun the time came when the locks from crown to tip were all chestnut but when it came i would have given the world for them to be gold again for elizabeth had said a curious thing when she had given me her promise all right dear she had said but something tells me that when they are all brown again our happiness will be at an end how long will that take i had said trying to be gay though an involuntary shudder had gone through me less at her words than because of the strange conviction of her manner about two years perhaps a little more she said answering me quite seriously as she gravely measured the shining tresses half her body's length with her eye End of Book 4, Chapter 2 Quest of the Golden Girl Book 4, Chapter 3 The Golden Girl One fresh and sunny morning, some months after this night, Elizabeth and I stood before the simple altar of a little country church, for the news had come to us that her husband was dead, and thus we were free to belong to each other before all the world the exquisite stillness in the cool old church was as the peace in our hearts and the rippling sound of the sunlit leaves outside seemed like the very murmur of the stream of life down which we dreamed of gliding together from that hour 
it was one of those moments which sometimes come and go without any apparent cause when life suddenly takes a mystical aspect of completeness all its discords are harmonized by some unseen hand of the spirit and all its imperfections fall away the lover of beauty and the lover of god alike know these strange moments but none know them with such a mighty satisfaction as a man and woman who love as loved elizabeth and i love forever completes the world for it is no future of higher achievement no expectation of greater joy it lives forever in a present made perfect by itself love can dream of no greater blessedness than itself of no heaven but its own god himself could have added no touch of happiness to our happy hearts that grave and sunny morning you philosophers who go searching for the meaning of life thinkers reading so sadly and let us hope so wrongly the riddle of the world life has but one meaning the riddle but one answer which is love to love is to put yourself in harmony with the spheral music of creation to stand in the centre of the universe and see it good and whole as it appears in the eye of god even death himself the great and terrible king of kings though he may break the heart of love with agonies and anguish and slow tortures of separation may not break his faith no one that has loved will dream even death too terrible a price to pay for the revelation of love for that revelation once made can never be recalled as a little sprig of lavender will perfume a queen's wardrobe so will a short year of love keep sweet a long life and love's best gifts death can never take away nay indeed death does not so much rob as enrich the gifts of love the dead face that was fair grows fairer each spring sweet memories grow more sweet what was silver is now gold and as years go by the very death of love becomes its immortality i think i shall never hear elizabeth's voice again never look into her eyes never kiss her dear lips but elizabeth is still mine and i am hers as in that morning when we kissed in that little chancel amid the flickering light and passed out into the sun and down the lanes to her little home among the meadow sweet she is still as real to me as the stars and alas as far away i think no thought that does not fly to her i have no joys i do not share with her i tell her when the spring is here and we sit beneath the moon and listen to the night-jar together 
Sometimes we are merry together, as in the old time, and our laughter makes night-faring folk to cross themselves. My work, my dreams, my loves, are all hers, and my very sins are sinned for her sake. Two years did Elizabeth and I know the love that passeth all understanding, and day by day the chestnut upon her head was more and the gold less, till the day came that she had prophesied, and with that day a little child, whose hair had stolen all her mother's gold, as her heart had drained away her mother's life. Ah, reader, may it be long before you kneel at the bedside of her you love best in the world, and know that of all your love is left but a hundred heartbeats, while opposite sits death, watch in hand, and fingers upon her wrist. Husband, whispered Elizabeth as we looked at each other, For the last time, let her be your little golden girl. And then a strange sweetness stole over her face, and the dream of Elizabeth's life was ended. As I write, I hear in the still house the running of little feet, a fairy patter sweet and terrible to the heart. Little feet, little feet, perhaps if I follow you, I shall find our mother that is lost. Perhaps Elizabeth left you with me that I should not miss the way. Tu par sola. End of chapter three. End of book four. End of the quest of the golden girl.